Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey, good you're awake today. I love it. You know, we sing that song in, in Christ alone. That's been my prayer this morning, that it would be in Christ. It would be Christ's power in which I stand as we present uh, from God's word this morning. So my name is, is Matt Sawada. I'm one of the pastors here at LEFC. And again, it is my privilege to, to open up God's word with you this morning. We've got some friends, some of these ushers who are, are coming down the aisle. Uh, they've got a Bible that they would love to give you if you forgot it. Uh, if you uh, maybe you don't have one, uh, please raise your hand. They will uh, hand you a Bible. We'll be in the book of Daniel this morning, uh, stepping through this series called uh, Thriving in Babylon. And so this series has, has been a glimpse into Daniel's life. It's been a glimpse into the, the culture in Babylon. And what we've seen as Daniel has, has lived out his faith time and time again, um, we, we've, been, we've been learning that Babylon's really not much different than today. Now, we don't have a king. We don't have a fiery furnace. Uh, thankfully, we're, we're not getting tossed into lion's dens. But the culture is, is somewhat similar. Uh, what we've been looking at these last couple weeks is we've been looking at hope and where Daniel found his hope, what were some things that encouraged that hope, what were some things that, that hindered, or uh, I think Tony used the words last week, what, what kills that hope? What were some things that, that got in the way of Daniel's hope? And so today's a, a shift in the sermon series where we're going to transition from hope to, to talking about credibility. It's because of the hope, not the, the strong hope that we have, but it's because of the object of our hope that we are able to live lives that gain credibility within our oikos, within our sphere of influence. And so these next couple weeks, we're going to look at, at how credibility is earned by the way we live, by the way we love, and by the way we speak. You see, people are watching and they're watching your beliefs play out in the way you live. The beautiful part is the pressure's not on us. We get to live out the overflow from what he has done on our behalf. And so this is just, we're just conduits of something Christ has already done. He's given us the spirit and we get to live. We get to love out of that spirit and we get to speak from that place of brokenness. I think that's what we need to be highlighting in Daniel. Daniel was great, but this story is not about his great faith. It's about his faith in a great God. And so Daniel had the opportunity, he had the platform to live the way he did because of the God that he served. And I, so I don't know if, you, if you've noticed, but, but humility Character matters <laughs> tremendously. It matters in your workplace. It matters at home. It matters here at church. Humility is significant. But why does it matter? You know, living with this selfless humility, humility I'm going to have a hard time with that word today, <laughs> living with a selfless humility communicates a difference. And it earns a respect, it earns an, an audience. People notice when you're putting someone else first. 
See, humility matters because it's at the core of the gospel. For us to even see Christ as our Savior, there's a little bit of humility packaged in that. Humility is one of the, a lack of humility is what keeps people from Christ because they think they can earn and do it on their own. And so for us to even, to even know Christ, his spirit's birthing a humility in us to allow him to actually meet the needs that, that we can't provide on our own. And so why does humility matter? It is core, it is central to this message of justification. We cannot justify ourselves. It is only through Christ. It is in Christ alone, which what we just sang. Why does humility matter? Easy Sunday school answer. Jesus said so. Amen, we're done. <laughs> you know, it, humility matters because Jesus repeats it again, again, and again. I'd like you to read this verse with me. This is in Matthew 23, 12. It's in Luke 14, 11, and Luke 18, 14. Everyone say this with me. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All right, you're going to hear that verse a few times. Jesus repeated it, so will Matt. <laughs> well, he, he says it three times in these different contexts. In Matthew 23, he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees and the scribes. That has happened, that 23, kind of 12, it concludes 1 through 12. Uh, right before he starts saying, woe is, woe is, woe is, there's seven woes. And he's just, it's a really harsh text written to Pharisees. But what he's doing there is he's basically poking holes in the lifestyles of these people who are elevating themselves. And he's saying, hey, guys, you're in trouble. Now look who's exalting themselves. You're about to be humbled at some point, whether it's in this world or the next. And Luke 14, he uses a wedding as his example. And he says, hey, can you imagine walking into a wedding and sitting at the place of honor only to be asked to move to the lowest seat? How embarrassing would it be if you walked in and sat in the groom's seat at a wedding reception? Or if you walked into the wedding and you sat where the mother of the bride was supposed to sit? Yeah, you'd get moved in a second. He says, no, it would be better to sit in the lowest seat and for the host to move you into a, a nicer, to a more exalted place. So he says, whoever, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then in Luke 18, he, he shares this verse after speaking about prayer. You've got the Pharisee who's praying, me, me, look what I did. I, it's about me. I'm praying this prayer in some ways to myself because now I'm God. But then you see this tax collector who humbles himself, who is broken and contrite, and his heart is recognizing his need and Jesus says, one of these two is going to be justified. One of these two is justified in the way they're approaching me. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So why does it matter? It's at the core of the gospel. Why does it matter? Jesus says so. And it's not just Jesus. The rest of Scripture speaks to this. It matters because Paul and Peter tell us this. He, Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that we should put on humility 
He tells us in Ephesians 4 that we should walk in humility. In Peter, in 1 Peter 5, he tells us that we should be clothed with humility. Those are strong commands to be clothed with, to put it on, to walk in. You you see this repetition? You see how they're building this charge to, to live with humility? When we clothe ourselves with humility, our focus isn't on the elevation of self, but it's on the exaltation of Christ. When we when we humbly serve someone around us, we aren't looking for the personal accolades. But when we serve them, we're taking an opportunity to make God look big with our actions. You see, when we clothe ourselves, when we put on humility, when we walk with humility, it's in those humble moments where our focus shifts from me to him. And once it shifts from me to him, now I can look at you And there's actually space for me to love and serve the people around. See, humility is important because it's central to who we are as Christians. Several authors have said that this is the core virtue. If love is the core fruit, humility is the core root. To actually connect to the vine, John 15, It takes humility to realize that these gifts, these fruits that are birthed, aren't me. It's Christ in me. And it takes that humility to stay connected to what God is doing in and through me. Unfortunately, we live in a society where this isn't the norm, is it? Not at all. The cultural norm is the exaltation of self. It's about me looking good. You see this in athletes and actors. You see it in pastors, unfortunately, and politicians. You see it in businesses and different brands, on commercials. You see it in churches, unfortunately. You see it, on, it just in culture, wherever you are. You see, culture it says that it's about the attention. It's about the approval, the appearance. It's about, it's about me being elevated. This happens on a broad public scale, but it also happens in us as individuals personally and privately. We, as humans, want to be exalted. Every one of us struggles with this disease, this exaltitis. It's called pride. And believe it or not, it's in you too. We all try to look better than we really are. And what we wear, and what we say, and what we do, and what we post online, social media is a, just as festers meism, right? None of these things are bad in themselves, and all can be used in great ways, but our hearts tend to use these opportunities to platform how great we are, elevating self, rather than exalting Christ. The reality is is that as humans, our hearts are hardwired for this self-exaltation. 
It's hardwired in us. It's called human nature, it's called sin, and it's called pride. I've got it, and so do you. You know, this happened to me this last week. Uh, full disclosure, I am not a photographer. Uh, I, am, I am hardwired not only to sin, but I'm hardwired to remember the person. I focus on the person and the conversation is so much more important than capturing the beauty of the moment. I can't do pictures. You look at my roll of pictures, they're all like photographs of the food that I've eaten and I send them to Joel. Right? <laughs> and that's the same in his too. Right? They kind of go back and forth with the good burger that we just had yesterday or something. So uh, photographs, that's not me. That's just not my gift. It's not my wiring. Um, well, Wednesday night, I walked out. Walked out of church. It was that day we had all that rain, that storm, right? And it was, it was kind of that the sun was setting, so it kind of had this brown, beautiful feel, right? It was still raining, but it wasn't cloudy. I, my mind couldn't understand that either. Like, rain comes from clouds. What's going on, God. You know, so you still have this drizzle, but it was just a beautiful kind of culmination of the crazy storms we had. And so I'm walking out. I'm kind of going quickly because it's raining, but I saw Ken, pastor, you know, worship pastor Ken, was standing at his car just looking up. And Ken, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm trying to take this picture, but my phone can't do it. In my mind, I'm thinking, it's because you use an Android, right? <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Um, so he's, he's trying to take this picture, and I'm like, well, what's he taking a picture of? Because again, I'm thinking of the person, not of the scenario. I turn around, whoa, and this is what I see. All right, I, I turn around, I'm like, that's amazing. And I was like, I bet an iPhone can take that picture. <laughs> so, so I pull out my iPhone, you know, the panoramic setting, and just take it. I just do it once and get in my car, oh, that's cool. And I drive home, I send it to a couple of guys on staff, and Megan, our graphics person, gets it, and she says, we should put this on Facebook. Well, it's on Facebook, and after 36 hours, we have 200 likes. You know, we get all these great comments, Pastor Matt, you're this, yeah, I'm such a good photographer. <laughs> but the reality is, it was Ken's idea, it was God's creation, and Megan made it look good. <laughs> she edited it but I took the credit. You see, that's the reality, isn't it? That I exalted myself in that moment and took the credit that wasn't mine. This is God's credit. But I stole a little bit of it. I'm hardwired to steal the glory that he deserves. And in Babylon, this, the exact exaltation of self was no different. Now, they didn't have platforms like Instagram or no iPhones for Nebuchadnezzar to video himself and post something on Twitter. But the message was the same in Babylon. You see, these Babylonians were still hardwired. They still had sin in them, and they still wanted the exaltation. So the message is no different than culture preaches today. Let's take others down a notch so that I can be exalted. You do what you need to do, whatever the cost to succeed. It's about me, myself, and I. So Daniel and his buddies faced the same cultural pressures that we live in now. Turn to the book of Daniel with me, please. 
In Daniel 3, uh, We've been, we've been hitting a lot of these texts over and over. Daniel 3 is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were forced to worship this idol of King Nebuchadnezzar. And basically the story is, as whenever you hear, there's this big gathering, whenever you hear all these instruments start to play, you're supposed to bow down and worship this image. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't do that. They weren't about to exalt an image above the God they knew who was present. The God who they knew had gotten them through all these years, they weren't about to elevate and exalt a man above him, so they didn't. And this is what you see in verse 8 of chapter 3. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears all these instruments must fall down and worship this image of God. Whoever does not fall down will be thrown into this blazing furnace. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of their faith, faced this fiery furnace. Because of who God is and was in their lives, they were willing to live counterculturally. Now, these astrologers, I always wonder, if everyone's supposed to be bowing down, why are they looking? (laughs) How did they not get in trouble too? I would have pulled them into the furnace with me. You see, but these guys were taking an opportunity to de-escalate someone else so they can be elevated. Who looked good in that moment? It wasn't these three, but it was them. And then everything changed when they ended up walking back out of the fire. God was exalted, not Nebuchadnezzar and not these astrologers. We see this again in Daniel 6, where Daniel faced the lion's den for his faith. Again, real quickly, here's King Darius now. Nebuchadnezzar has passed, now it's Darius. And Daniel has an opportunity. He's setting 120 guys in leadership. He picks three of them to lead the 120. You've got a beautiful leadership structure in Babylon. And Daniel, in his excellent spirit, it says in a different version, because of his excellent spirit, was going to be elevated above those three who are above the 120. Daniel's going to have the keys to the kingdom. And yet, these people were jealous of his position. They tried to take him down, didn't they? You see, the character of these Jews in Babylon was so different that people were looking for ways to take them down. And you see, Daniel, the only way, let's see, this is in verse 4, they could not find corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So finally they said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Amen. I mean, if someone's going to persecute me, I hope they say that. That I can't see corruption in his character. And so I'm going to have to create laws against the habits that he has set in place so that he can give God glory. And so this book is not about how great Daniel is. This book in Daniel is about his great God. 
And because of who his God is, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego lived differently. And because they lived differently, because of their great God, people noticed. Now, there are some negative instances, but in both instances, the king noticed as well. So this credibility is not because they're great, it's because of who God is. Well, we do have examples of this humility. Daniel is one of them. You see it, again, this this whole tension between exaltation and humiliation in Luke 14 and 18 and Matthew 23 plays out in Daniel. He says no to the food in Daniel 1, giving God the glory rather than eating steak, right? He chews vegetables over steak. What guy would do that? But, but in a sense, he, he did it because God was worth it. He turned down this delicious food because I'm trusting that God has something better for me. So I'm, I'm going to elevate him rather than myself. Or maybe it's in Daniel 2. Turn with me. Daniel 2 verse, um, we'll start here in 19, 17. So basically, here's this dream Nebuchadnezzar has. It's his vision. And he's challenged everybody to, to, to basically interpret the dream. But to interpret it, you've got to tell me what I dreamt. And everyone say, they can't do that. You guys remember this. Tony, I believe, spoke this a couple weeks ago. So first thing Daniel does is he runs to his buddies and says, hey, we need to pray. We got to go before God in verse 17. He returns, this 2.17, to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azarizer. Later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Hey, guys, we got to go to God. This is, this is outside of us. This is outside of human. We need to go to divine. God gives him a vision. He interprets the vision in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And then in verse 27, in telling him this, it'd be really easy for Daniel to say, yeah, I can do this. This is me. I'm going to exalt self. He says, no, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So it was God they pleaded to. It's now God who gave this to him to share to Nebuchadnezzar. And after doing so, Nebuchadnezzar's jaw is dropped. And Daniel says at the end of verse 45, he said, It's the great God. This is 2.45. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. So Daniel has a perfect opportunity to, to steal some of the glory that God deserved, and he didn't. See, in that moment, Daniel decides to, I'm going to just deflect all praise vertically. So when you have an opportunity to steal some of this credit, what do you typically do? when you have an opportunity to take credit that isn't typically yours or it isn't yours that you deserve, how do you respond? You see, it's in that moment. It's in that moment where humility becomes real. 
And we can either res- we can respond pridefully. We can elevate. I'm so good. I did that. We can respond with a false humility by saying, man, I am so bad at that, but please tell me how good I am. Build me back up. Or I can deflect the praise. And I can say, hey, it's not about me, it's about him. Or, hey, it was, it was about somebody else and what they did. I mean, but God sure is good, isn't he? You see the difference between those three responses? See, humility is taking our place in this world no matter how big or small. And it's fulfilling that place with a heart overflowing with love. Saying, God, please enter into this space. This space isn't for me. This space is for you. And so, here's the ugly side of Matt. Right? Matt struggles with this as I'm assuming you do too. And typically, this happens in Matt when uh, I'm confronted with something. Uh, it's, it's in that moment when someone has poked a hole in me. That's when I failed. Particularly when I've let someone else down is when I feel this pride oozing. And so let's, let's paint this picture. Um, just, let's say it's a tale of two mats. The, the first, first mat, let's say mat A, the prideful, self-exalting mat, which comes out probably too often. Uh, someone comes to me and, and confronts my sin, makes my sin public. I knew I sinned. This isn't a shock to me. It's not a shock to them, but we've got to deal with this issue. So we're we're talking through it. Prideful Matt responds in this way. Prideful Matt says, in my mind, oh, stink. I'm caught. You see, Prideful Matt has himself on a platform. And Prideful Matt finds it really hard to admit that there are chinks in his armor. Because see, this mat on a platform has got to look good in front of everybody else. This prideful mat is now realizing someone has seen my failure and uh, has exposed the fact that I'm not perfect. So shocker. But, but really, prideful mat believes that. that. That in some ways, I have justified myself. So in that moment, I justify well, they deserved it. Or I blame shift. That's all Joel's fault. Or I, I throw a pity party and I, I kind of play this victim martyr scenario. Well, I mean, I've just been so busy at work and I just, man, it's this and this and this. You guys resonating with Prideful Matt this morning? You see, in this scenario, what I've done is I've added, that, I've added my works to the sufficiency of Christ. You see, but there's another way to respond. Instead of Matt A, Matt prideful Matt, I can respond like Matt B. I can respond like someone who's resting and trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And when I'm confronted with my failure, 
again, mentally, I own it. I say, I'm sorry. You see, both mats face the same failures. They face the same pressures. Sin is going to be exposed in either cases. And just because this mat is trusting and resting in Christ's sufficiency, it does not mean that this mat is perfect. What it means is when mat is imperfect, I lean into Christ rather than step onto my platform. And by leaning into Christ, I say, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I ask for forgiveness for whatever that failure is, and I repent. I don't promise I will never do it again because that's not reality. I'm not happy about sinning. I'm not boasting about my sin so that God gets more glory. Romans 6 tells us not to do that, but I'm not ashamed in it. See, this mat can apologize, I can own it, and I can walk in freedom because of what Christ has done for me. The tale of two mats not only just paints a, t- a picture of, of how we respond, but it really gives a glimpse into how humility can be played out in every single situation. So our first example of this humility was Daniel. Then you had Matt. In some ways, it's better or worse example. In both cases, we face these humiliations. And in this case, uh, this lady, her name is Karen Pryor. She's an author. She wrote a book called On Reading Well. She says this, Of course, every humiliation of ours is a pale shadow of Christ's humiliation. Comparing whatever we go through to what he did puts our afflictions in proper perspective. This is the beginning of humility. She quotes C.S. Lewis in that same paragraph, and she says this, humility is thinking less about yourself, not thinking less of yourself. You guys catch that difference? It's thinking about yourself less. It's not becoming a doormat. See, humility is an opportunity to elevate him and live just as we've been created as imperfect humans, giving glory to our creator. Christ modeled this beautifully for us. He models this beautifully for us in Philippians 2. I love this passage. It's worth spending the week in. After we process humility, Philippians 2 is where you should turn. You get a glimpse at what Christ has done in verses 5 through 8. It tells us that we should have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And Christ became nothing. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a human and humbled himself, even to the point of death, to death on a cross. And then transitions. I love this. Philippians 2.9, it talks about this, uh, this beautiful tension between humility and exaltation. 
because we see Jesus humble himself to the point of death, extreme humiliation. And then in verse nine, it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You see, the perfect picture of humility comes in the form of Jesus. And out of that, we see that he made himself nothing, therefore God exalted him, and because of those two things, he's nothing, God's exalted him, we should have the same mindset as that. So, verses three and four, it tells us in humility we should value each other more than ourselves. We should put the interests of others before our own. This is the mindset shift that we spoke about a little bit ago. See, humbling ourselves under God's hand brings about peace in us and it alleviates the anxiety. This mat is exhausting. This mat trying to perform and platform himself over and over again is not sustainable. This mat can have peace because I'm not trying to be perfect. You know, as I've read about this, as I've kind of studied and prayed through this sermon, a quote that this guy, Christopher Hutchinson, wrote um, in a book called Rediscovering Humility, it said this. This has been my prayer for us. He says that a humble church is a healthy church. A humble church is a healthy church. Uh, LEC, that's been my prayer for each of you. You're a part of this church. And we don't talk about this oikos and sphere of influence as something you have to go do. We, the reason we make a big deal about that sphere of influence is because we get to live out what God has done for us and others get to see it. And then we get to tell them about it. We're not earning anything within that sphere of 8 to 15. And so we get to live counterculturally because it glorifies God in the result of that is the credibility that happens. This is a get to, not a have to. And so what would it look like for us to be a humble church? What would it look like for us to do that? It would change the way we approach church on a Sunday morning. We approach a sermon differently. Like, all right, Lord, what would you have for me today? Not a, I mean, we're in Daniel again. I already know this story. I remember the flannel graphs growing up. Like, do we need it again? We approach, uh, we approach a Sunday morning looking for the people who are around us who might need to be noticed rather than stepping in hoping that they notice me. Parents, you know, how would you be humble at home? Well, maybe you'd ask for forgiveness. 
when you sin, because you do, rather than pretending you didn't and confusing your kids. That's a really confusing gospel message. Now, maybe teenagers, you actually listen to your parents. You don't assume that they know nothing and you know it all. Employers, what would it look like to actually stop and pick up a piece of trash rather than asking him to do it? Because this is beneath you. Neighbors, on a windy, stormy Wednesday, what about spending five minutes picking up the trash cans that had blown all over the street? How many of us drove past them and pulled into a garage? You're not doing things for, for the elevation. You're doing things because this mindset of Christ is putting someone else's interests first. So really quickly, three habits of humility. It begins with love. You want to see how you're doing here? True love requires humility. For me to actually love you, I've got to get out of the way. There actually has to be space for me to relate with somebody else. And when I live pridefully, there is no space in that. So who are you exalting? What are you exalting in those relationships? Secondly, gratitude. When was the last time you actually said thank you? You actually thanked someone for what they did. You noticed what they did. And you appreciated them. You see, prideful Matt wouldn't even notice. So this gratitude requires and recognizes and prizes the work that another does and who the other is. Again, who or what are you exalting? And then lastly, in prayer. Actually praying takes humility because you're realizing that I am not God. He is. So the first question there is, when was the last time you actually prayed? And not just before a meal. Prayer takes humility much less than, what are you actually praying about? Is God like Aladdin? And you can rub this, uh, this little cup, and now he's a genie, he's going to answer my needs? Or are you actually thanking him for what he's done and who he is? You see, love Gratitude and prayer require this humility. I would challenge you guys, because of what Christ has done on our behalves, to begin thinking about yourself less, not less of yourself. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're just thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, and the opportunity we have to honor you with our lives. I just ask we just pray that those moments in which we get out of the way and we actually exalt you rather than ourselves and our lives, God, I just, just ask that others would notice, Father, that you would get the credibility because of the way we live. And so we just thank you again for the sacrifice of your son 
and the way he modeled humility by becoming nothing for us. Lord, we love you, and we just so appreciate you as our humble king. Well, in the book of, of Micah, you've got this prophet who's just wondering, um, what, what can I bring before the Lord? He says, says Micah 6.6, 6, says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of, of olive oil? Or shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God's response is this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. LEFC today, I'm going to challenge you to not exalt yourselves because then you'll be humbled, but to humble yourselves so that he can be exalted. Love you guys. Have a great day.